If you remember, right back at the beginning of the year, way back in uh, cold, wet January, I spoke about the two main things that we were hoping to see way more of in the church this year. Uh, I won't ask you to remind me what they were. I will be very kind and I will tell you or remind you what those two things were. Uh, We are, as I'm sure you can remember, we're looking for way more devotion to Jesus. Remember that one? Yeah, yeah. And we're also believing for much multiplication. Way more devotion to Jesus, much multiplication. Very simply, we're looking Sunday by Sunday as we gather here to fuel devotion as we worship, as we pray, as we fast, as we hear from his word. And out of devotion, we want to keep on responding with faith-filled obedience to the word of God. And as we go... We desperately want to see multiplication. We pretty much want to see everything that we do that's good multiply, whether that's our kids' work, our youth work, our student work, our work with seniors, our life groups, our site leadership teams, our serving teams. Uh, We could do with a bit of financial multiplication right now. We want to see our work with Christians against poverty multiply. Sputnik, our work with the creative arts, want to see that multiply. Our influence and impact in the city, our work overseas. We want to see it all multiply. And through all of that, We want to see multiplication of people coming to faith in Jesus. Because at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus and helping more and more and more and more people accept the invitation to live lives of devotion to him. Now, I guess there are tons of different ways that we could go about trying to bring all of that about what kinds of strategies and ideas and cunning plans. But really, more than anything else, what we need is more of the power of the Holy Spirit, more of God's goodness, more of his grace, more of his presence, more of his power among us. And so really, all I want to do today is take a look at a passage in the book of Acts that I think shows us what it actually looks like when God's power comes on a people and the kingdom of God begins breaking out in a whole city. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11 and we're going to join the story in verse 19. This is what it says. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy And he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. And many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. 
during this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was, in fact, fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. This they did, entrusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Now, just so you know, this passage is very much a turning point in the whole story that unfolds through the book of Acts. This passage marks a transitional point for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. If you recall, to start off with, the Christian church was pretty much exclusively made up of Jewish converts in Jerusalem. But following the murder of Stephen and the scattering of the church as a result of the persecution that followed, we begin to see God slowly but surely pushing people's prejudices and breaking down some of the barriers so that the gospel can spread throughout the world. So first of all, if you remember, we saw the gospel bearing fruit amongst the Samaritans. Then we see Philip being sent to the Ethiopian eunuch. Then we see Peter going to the home of Cornelius. And here in this passage, we see the moment where some of the scattered believers start spreading the gospel to a whole Gentile, unbelieving city, the city of Antioch. Now, just by way of background, uh, for those who are interested in your your history, Antioch was the capital city of Syria. Syria is in the news a whole lot right now. Antioch was the capital of Syria. It was also the third largest city in the whole Roman Empire, about half a million people called Antioch home. It was an incredibly diverse, cosmopolitan city. It had this rich ethnic diversity. It was full of different religions, ideas, and philosophies. It was certainly a challenging place to stand up and preach about Jesus. But that is what a small group of believers started doing. And we're told that the power of the Lord was with them. Now, the question we're considering today is this. What did that actually look like? I mean, we talk a lot, don't we? We sing songs, we we pray about God sending his power to us. But what should we be expecting to see? How do we know our prayers are answered? How do we know that God's power had come? What's the evidence that God's power really is at work among us? Well, I want to dip into this passage I've just read, and I want to very quickly give you five defining marks of what happens when the power of God breaks out on a community of people. You up for that? Okay, here's the first one. If you'd said no, it would have been slightly awkward. Uh, I probably would have gone on anyway, but uh, as you said yes, here we go. First of all, when the power of God breaks out on a community of people, there is radical conversion. Radical conversion. Truth is, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And pretty much any time he comes near, he goes after those who don't yet know him. 
Verse 21 says, The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles, these people who didn't believe in God, ended up believing and turning to the Lord. Now, that sounds pretty exciting to me, but the church back in Jerusalem, they weren't quite so convinced. They were a little suspicious. And so they sent this envoy to find out what was going on. So Barnabas travels to Antioch to investigate. And we're told in verse 23 that when he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he saw that it was genuine, he was filled with joy. There was this deep, tangible change in people's lives as a result of them turning to the Lord. I'll tell you, this culturally diverse Gentile city, Antioch, was the least likely place, really, you'd expect a message about a Jewish Messiah to bear a whole lot of fruit. But it did. Now, when I think of Birmingham, and some of the challenges that we are facing in our city at the moment, this passage gives me tremendous confidence. Because I don't know what you think, but I don't think many people are particularly open to the gospel, particularly open to the good news about Jesus right now in our city. But I also think most people aren't interested because they're responding to a caricature that's a massive distortion of the true, genuine message. It's like they've rejected their own made-up view of what Christianity is all about. But when people hear the good news of what we actually believe they're surprisingly open. And I think they're open because the secular story doesn't work for the human heart. The purpose of it all that's being peddled by the society around us doesn't ultimately satisfy people. If they're willing to be honest, a lot of people know deep down inside of them there is something more. There's this ache, there's this longing for something more. And I know this is pretty shocking, and it it, it might be news to some of you, but as Christians, we actually have the truth. We, We are sitting on good news. We have in our possession a message that has the power to set people's lives free. That's what a guy called Philip Yancey says, eliminating the sacred, in other words, kind of wiping out any idea or any belief in God, it changes in a fundamental way the story of our lives. In times of greater faith, people kind of saw themselves as individual creations of a loving God who, regardless of how it may have looked at any given moment, still had final control over a world that was destined one day for restoration. Now, People with no faith find themselves lost and alone with no overarching story to give promise to the future and meaning to the present. And that is how it is for the majority of the people around us. And so I think we're alive at a time where there's tremendous opportunity You see, when people are kind of apathetic and couldn't really care less about God, but at the same time, they're also inwardly aware that the story of society, that the the thing that they've bought into is that's the answer, it isn't really working. I'll tell you, they're ripe to hear the genuine message of the gospel. They're ripe to hear about Jesus. And this is what God does when his power comes near. People you never would have expected 
become followers of Jesus. When the power of God comes on a community, salvation happens. It just does. Let's be honest. Most of our growth here at Church Central over the years has come from Christians transferring from other churches. There isn't necessarily anything wrong with that, but I believe that the future of the church is God wants to see growth by conversion. People who are currently far from God, seeing the tangible evidence of His goodness and kindness and grace among us, and hearing the truth of the good news about Jesus, and turning to follow Him in their droves. Listen, when the power of God is at work in the church, that is what happens. There's radical conversion. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Second thing that happens when the power of God is at work in a community, the church becomes a force for reconciliation. It becomes a place where cultural tensions are healed and warring parties are brought together in a brand new community. I want to notice how verse 21 refers to a large number believing. Verse 24 describes how many people were brought to the Lord. And we know from historians that Antioch was this deeply divided city. Yes, it was diverse. Yes, there are all these different cultures and ethnicities, but racial tensions ran pretty deep. There wasn't a whole lot of peace between these different ethnic groups. In fact, because there were so many riots and so much loss of life in the city, they actually built literal walls and created these different ethnic quarters where different groups would live, segregated from one another. So far, archaeologists kind of digging up through the ruins of Antioch, they've discovered 18 different segregated areas. And so they built all of these walls in the city to keep the different people groups and ethnicities separate. But as a result of the power of God working as the believers proclaim the good news about Jesus in the city, these dividing walls were dismantled so they could gather together and worship as one. As we've seen before, by the time you get to Acts 13, that the leadership in this church in Antioch, it reflected the diversity in the city. Luke lists five church leaders, one's from the Middle East, one's from Asia, one's from the Mediterranean, two are from Africa. Now look, we live in a time of history, don't we, where a lot of people are desperately trying to figure out how to build genuine community. What, what can we do to try and help people come together? In a city like Birmingham, with so many different racial tensions, how do we break down the dividing walls? How do we, how can we live together in peace? The answer is through the unifying power of the gospel. I reckon we have a phenomenal opportunity right now to model something to this city of what it looks like for people from different cultures and backgrounds to be genuine family together. Admittedly, it is much easier if we just separate out and exist in our own homogenous groups, only mixing with people like us. But that is not God's design. And actually, it's not what this city needs. I'm telling you, there is so much at stake, too much at stake, not to actively work towards cultural integration 
in the church. Although it's hugely challenging, we've got to overcome our cultural prejudices and preferences and build something here that demonstrates to this city how it's done. Listen, God's intention is for the church to be the leader of diversity and reconciliation in the city. And so when the politicians and the media are kind of looking for ways to solve the ethnic divisions in the city, they should be able to look in on the church and recognize that we have the answer. When the power of God is genuinely at work in the church, it becomes a force for reconciliation. The third thing we see in the passage is that it releases unprecedented generosity. Let's have a listen again to this little bit of the passage where what Jesus does impacts not only people's hearts and their minds, but also their finances. Verse 27, during this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. I think what usually happens in an economic downturn, we've been through a bit of that recently, is the wealthy are inconvenienced and the poor are just decimated. And what we see here is that when the gospel comes to a city, and it starts changing people's hearts, it results in remarkable generosity. Let's not miss what's happening here. This Jewish prophet, who was unknown to the church in Antioch, he rocks up in this Gentile city. He says, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, but the Holy Spirit's told me there's going to be a a bit of a flood. It's going to result in a big famine. So I want you all to take out your money and send it to a bunch of poor people that you don't know back in Judea who are going to be most affected by this tragedy. And as a result, it says they decided to give as much as they could to a bunch of people who they'd never even met before. That's what happens when the power of God starts working in the church. It releases unprecedented generosity. It's similar to what happens back in Acts chapter 4, it talks about how the grace of God was at work among them. And one of the evidences, evidences of this was that none of them considered any of their possessions their own. Now look, it's one thing to have your heart liberated from sin. It's quite another thing to have your wallet liberated from greed. And this is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon people. A guy called Tim Keller says this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money but gave practically everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body but everybody their money. I love this picture of financial promiscuity. It's like they just couldn't keep their wallet in their pocket. I mean, it was absolutely crazy. But what a vision to have. I mean, how many of you parents want your kids, or have a vision for your kids to grow up sexually promiscuous but financially stingy? Or who makes the better neighbor? I tell you, most of the time we go for someone who's 
financially promiscuous but sexually conservative. Go for that every day of the week. Once again, I reckon there's this opportunity that we have when the power of God is at work among us and it creates in us this incredibly generous community. Because people outside are going to look in and see that. They're going to say, well, look, if you're willing to be that generous with your money, with your stuff, I mean, maybe there is something more to your faith after all. And I'm not quite ready to say all in, there is a God, but perhaps there is. So Amazon, the power of God is at work in, communi- in a community. It unlocks generosity. It has an impact on the society around. That's the third thing. Here's the fourth thing. When the power of God is at work in a community, it raises up and releases people's destiny. I've got this conviction that the church really should be the best place on the planet for helping people reach their full potential. I mean, look at Jesus' skill. He took a a bunch of loser fishermen and turned them into apostles that founded the biggest religious movement in the history of humanity. His incredible belief in people his amazing patience with people, his detailed care for people, his trust in them, his ability to train them, release things, release them, raise them up, hand things over to them. It's pretty impressive. But when the power of God is at work in a community, this is what it does. Finds people and it raises them up and it releases them so that the kingdom of God can be extended. Now, I don't know, you might be wondering how on earth I got that point out of this passage. But just take another look at verse 22. It says that when the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened in Antioch, they sent this guy Barnabas. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. So here Barnabas was, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith, seeing many people brought to the Lord. He was right in the thick of the action, doing a pretty good job. But right in the midst of all of that comes verse 25. It says, then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. So in the midst of being used greatly by God, kind of in the thick of the action, something akin to revival breaking out, Barnabas sees an opportunity to leave it all and develop Saul. And so he goes and fetches him, and the rest is history. If you read on in Acts, you see Barnabas fading very much into the background and Saul very much coming into the spotlight. Saul, who became known as Paul, ends up leading the charge, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Where did he learn most of that stuff? Well, yes, he learned it because someone gave him an opportunity in ministry, instead of just hogging all the limelight for themselves. I'll tell you, I want this to be a church full of the power of God where new leaders are being raised up and released left, right, and center. It's the fourth thing you see when the power of God is at work 
in a community. Here's the fifth and final thing. The power of God is at work in a community. It redefines cultural identity. It redefines cultural identity. In the way, right at the end of verse 26, we see that it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. This was the first place where the world were like, who are these people? We've never seen such a diverse bunch of people living in such close, caring community. We have no category for this. We we haven't the vocabulary. We we haven't the words. What should we call them? Well, they keep talking about Jesus Christ, and the more we look at them, the more they seem to live like him. I don't know, might as well call them Christians. And so the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, I've got a conviction that words and the meaning of words matter. You know, one of the enemy's desires is to corrupt things. He often does it through language. Three of the most powerful, profound concepts in the world. Hell, sex, and Jesus. These have become such casual, throwaway things in our day-to-day conversation. How many times do you hear people just say, what the hell? That is someone's eternal destiny without Jesus. Sex, one of the most sacred human acts, it just turned into a swear word. Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. His name's just another swear word, it's nothing. Our world doesn't understand who we are doesn't understand our true identity. And as a result, the name of Jesus and the church, they're just dismissed as things of no consequence, no value, things to be mocked. I call Leslie Newbegin. He says this. It's one of my favorite quotes at the moment. You, You may have heard me say it before. I'm pretty confident you'll hear me saying it again. He put it like this. We must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions which the gospel is the answer. I'll read that again. We must live in the kingdom of God in such a way it provokes questions which the gospel is the answer. I believe that the city of Antioch was looking at all of these people getting converted. It was looking at the church and seeing all of these people from different cultures being raised into leadership. It was looking at this financial generosity. It was looking at this new culture being created before their very eyes. And it led them to ask the question, what on earth is this? And the answer was the gospel. And as a result, many of them came to believe in Jesus. You know, I think we need to learn to live in the city in such a way that people are forced to ask, what kind of life is that? And it then gives us a platform to talk about Jesus. So that Christianity wouldn't be thought of as irrelevant or something to be ridiculed, but that once again it would be a thing of utter beauty. I think one of the chief ways this happens is by the way we choose to live in the city. You've probably heard me speak before about how the church in history was faithful during some of the the, the dreadful plagues. At the best of times, the, the cities of old, they were horrible, horrible places to live. There was no sanitation, they were rife with disease, 
Fires would come through, and we've seen it in the, the news this week. That, that was like the regular story in the cities of old. Dreadful, awful. To, to live in the city was a huge sacrifice. Yet scores of Christians resolved to stay in the city because that's where all the people were. And because they lived such radically different lives to the people around them, they very naturally became bearers of good news. One of the accounts we have from 260 AD, it describes how Christians responded to the plagues. Everyone else fled from the city. If they could, they left. Or even accounts of how if a family member showed signs of sickness as they were fleeing, the rest of the family, get this, would just kind of kick them out of the cart and leave them to die on the side of the road. However, the Christians would move into the city. They would bring these people into their homes. They would love them. They would show kindness to them. They would care for them. Observing all of this, there's a Greek historian called Eusebius who said the Christian deeds were on everyone's lips. As a result, the people glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced the people that the Christians alone were pious and truly reverent towards their God. So the Christians' deeds were on everybody's lips. Why are they doing that? That's because they're Christians. Who's doing this? Oh, it's the Christians again. I mean, they're everywhere. They just can't be stopped. What an amazing thing that wherever you looked, it was the Christians who were pouring themselves out in sacrificial love and care and compassion for their communities. It was the Christians who led the way, and this led to recognition and respect for their message that I don't reckon they could have got any other way. And I know it's hard living in a city. And I know it has its challenges, but it is absolutely worth it. There's a guy called Rodney Stark. He wrote this in a book called The Rise of Christianity. He said, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. You're getting the message. that There should be something distinctive about the way we love and the way we sacrifice and the way we serve our city that causes people to take a step back and ask the question, why on earth do they do that? To which we can then say, why wouldn't you do that? Because this life isn't all there is. I'm living for eternity. So I don't need to try and squeeze every ounce of pleasure out of this life because I've got an eternal perspective. And when people are exposed to that, they get to see what it truly means to be a Christian. And I reckon they'll be a little more open to our message.
Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, this is mildly inspiring. I love to be a part of a church like that. But this isn't just a corporate thing. This is an individual thing too. When the power of God comes not just on a community, but on an individual's life, that person is going to start caring about the lost. You're going to find yourself more and more thinking not just about how much you can keep, but about how much more you can give. You're going to start being concerned not just with what you can get out of the church, but who you can be investing in, who you can draw alongside and encourage, who you can disciple and train up. You're going to start reevaluating your major life choices around the kingdom of God, rather than just economics and career and comfort like everyone else. You're going to start seeing people outside as people to come alongside and bring love and care and compassion and kindness to. You're going to get faith to stay and work together with others for the good of this city. But everyone else, they're just trying to move away from the city. This is all about a corporate church full of the power of God, made up of individuals full of the power of God, being a force together for reconciliation and mission in a place like this. Let me close this out with one more passage. We refer to Acts chapter 4. If you remember back to the description we get in that chapter of the church, remember it was faced with a moment of crisis. They were under attack from the people outside. They were dealing with people who didn't want them being around, who were trying to snuff out the church before it had really started. They were being threatened. Their lives were in grave danger. And so what do they do? Retreat? Stay quiet? Now this is what they prayed. In a moment, I'm going to get all of us to stand and we're going to pray like this prayer, just to tip you off. This is what they prayed. They stood and with one voice, they prayed. And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And really, this is my prayer for us. I believe there is so much more that God has for us in this city. But it all starts with God stretching out his hand and filling us with more of his power.